Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, a fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by Zia Youssef, the co-founder of Velocity Black, a mould-breaking digital members club and one of the fastest growing venture-backed technology companies in the world. This was a really interesting episode to record. Zia is one of those tech founders who really does live and breathe his business and he has an almost philosophical approach to entrepreneurship that I think a lot of business people could learn from. In a freewheeling conversation, we spoke about the secret to all great partnerships, how to create word-of-mouth publicity and why we should all be chasing that top-of-the-rollercoaster feeling. Enjoy. Zia, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Not at all. You're um, the founder, obviously, of Velocity Black, which is a very cool digital online members club, I suppose we'd call it. But your background is in finance, which is quite a long way away from that slightly more dynamic world. What did you learn in, in that area that you brought now into this one? Yeah, um, I, firstly, I'm the co-founder. I have a brilliant co-founder called Alex McDonald, um, who's uh, very much uh, 50% of the uh, driving founding force, as it were. But in terms of the difference, I think I found myself in a career in finance without having, you know, it's not like I spent my entire teenage years um, and university years hell-bent on pursuing a career in finance. I ended up doing an internship, um, first at Lehman Brothers, actually, and then at Merrill Lynch, and then went on to... Um, get a job at Merrill's and then go to mm. Goldman. And I think, you know, I really enjoyed uh, my time there. It was really, really fun. I learned a hell of a lot. There are so many smart people. Um, I was actually really, frankly, quite shocked about how many people were so keen to actually help me with my career as well. I mean, it might sound odd. It's just because of the uh, preconceptions yeah, I had before I went in. But actually, one thing that um, I got to do in my career was spend time with C-level executives, including CEOs of some of the companies that I covered. And I looked after the automotive, aerospace, defense, and industrial complexes. Um, and actually, almost all of those companies, by the time I'd finished my career in finance, would have called them technology, could call themselves technology companies, just through the sheer speed at which the world is changing. Yeah. And frankly, I quit my job with Alex um, because we wanted to go and create products that we wanted to use ourselves. Um, I saw a big gap in the market for, frankly, I was really surprised at how much low-cost capital and the concentration of human IQ being spent on fun platforms, but basically ones that leave you pretty unfulfilled. So whether they're Amazon Prime Video or Netflix or Xbox or PlayStation okay. or Uber Eats or Seamless, <laughs> And I didn't understand why, you know, there wasn't a recommendation engine for travel and for experiences and to get you out and enjoying some, you know, really quality time with people you care about. These are the things that actually drive, in my view, meaning in your life mm. and give you this sense that you're going to look back on them fondly. So actually that connection was quite natural for yeah. me. And when you talk about meaning, was there a, a reason in your own life why you decided to quit a more kind of corporate traditional structure and do the startup thing. I've, I've read a, an anecdote in an interview with you before about mm. a boss who um, who kind of had a almost a, a realisation moment. Mm. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it was a formative moment for me. It was powerful. But well, look, what I'd say is I think we all go through life doing things quite automatically. You know, yeah. I think that 
probably more than ever now, I think a lot of people listening to this will sympathize with the notion of going from notification to notification, meeting to meeting, flight to flight, building to building, Uber to Uber, yeah. without ever actually stopping to take a breath and go, hold on a minute, what am I actually doing? What are my goals? What do I want to achieve? What do I want to be remembered for? And so that moment for me actually made me think about um, something one of my favorite teachers told me, uh, what well, got us to do, which is write your own obituary. Uh, which sounds really morbid, yeah, of course. but when you really stop, you just think, well, what would I, what, if you could write your own obituary, what would you want to be known for? And actually, this is something that really got me fascinated from a psychological standpoint, because, you know, when I was growing up, both my parents pretty much had to do two jobs to sort of make ends meet. And so often they weren't able to tuck me in at night. Most of the time they did, but sometimes they didn't. But that's a really different mentality, I think, to people. You know, suddenly I was working alongside people who had homes all over the world, mm. earned stupendous amounts of money, I had clients who were quite literally the sort of masters of the universe, the kind of acts from billion style characters. And these are people who also didn't actually get time to tuck their kids in at night. And actually, that's a different mentality, right? Because these yeah. are people who are so committed to their careers. It's not like they're trying to put food on the table and that's the motivation. And that was fascinating to me. And, and I think that... That particular individual was just quite symptomatic, I think, of not just people who work in finance, but there's nothing wrong with working in finance at all. And I really enjoyed my time there. What I know for myself personally was that I've always been very entrepreneurial. I've always known that you're going to regret things you don't do far more than the things you do. And so leaving the job at Goldman's, I mean, it's really interesting, right, because Goldman's is kind of a place where when you leave, a lot of people are like, well, why on earth would you leave? You know, it's a, it's a fantastic um, pathway to become a partner and, and all this stuff. And for me, that was never really particularly attractive. And I think, frankly, I think actually the longer you stay in it, you know, the more you've, you kind of have all of these encumbrances um, mm. and then it starts to form a part of your identity. And then that's really difficult to shift away from. So I, I think if there's one thing that that really affected me with, it's how important it is to be aware of what is what you value um, try to take some time to take stock of what you're doing and is what you're doing aligned with what your broader life goals are? And if they're not, frankly, having the courage to actually try to do something about it. And when did you make the leap? Was there a, a decisive moment? How did you decide to do it? Did you kind of ask your friends and family? Well, look, uh, if you speak to particularly my family, they'll tell you that um, I, I generally make my own mind up okay. about things. And... It's quite easy to go around looking with confirmation bias for somebody who's going to tell you you're doing the right thing, um, and I sometimes do that. But in the end, we're accountable for our own actions, right? And, and I think for me, it was it was actually a really easy decision. Um, I'd learned an awful lot in my career in finance. I did feel like my learning curve was flattening. I think we live in an incredible world now, actually, where you know a child in sub-Saharan Africa today has access to superior information technology than Ronald Reagan had in the White House, you know, and so. I felt like I had to seize that opportunity. I had Alex, um, who was also keen to do it. Um, so I thought, well, why on earth wouldn't we? And we set about um, trying to do it. And look, we had no technical expertise ourselves, but with the modern wonders of the internet, you can learn an awful lot quite quickly. Managed to put together a, a really great team quite quickly. You know, employee numbers one, two, and three are still with the firm um, from back in the day when they interviewed with us in our lower ground floor apartment, not too far from here. Um, so we just set off on the journey. and and. You know, one of the other things I'd say is when I speak to our, one of the joys of this company, uh, my job, is getting to talk to some of our members. 
And when I get to speak to some of them, I mean, some of these people are just the most extraordinary people. People have founded companies. Uh, one of them is a, a multi-multi-billionaire, self-made, son of Holocaust survivors, amazing guy. And you talk to him and he says something which really resonates with me and I think is really important, which is enjoy the journey. Because mm. there is no joy to be had at actually getting to the end of that journey. It's actually the journey itself and making sure that you are enjoying it, which is actually really tough. That's something I actually... It's really hard to not start worrying about this and worrying about that. And I think that that's really symptomatic of our age. I mean, we were just speaking earlier before we went. Um, yeah. We were recording about how we're so bombarded with information now. There's so many reasons to not be present in the moment. I think the average person in the West interacts with their phone or touches their phone 2,000 times a day, which is terrifying, right? Um, but actually, we are still these human beings that yearn for that connection yeah. uh, with our fellow species. Um, and yearn for meaning. And that's really, so I think there is actually, you're right, actually to ask the question that way. I think there is a connection between the path that I took and my pursuit of meaning, yeah. if that makes sense, and wanting to be authentic to what I cared about and what we tried to do for customers as yeah. well. So let's go back to that, that basement apartment, which you first started working at. What was that first day like? Did you have a name at that point? Did you have just stacks of paper? Where was the idea? No, we didn't have a name, and we went through some name ideas. And what were some I'm, of the bad ones? I, I, I can't. I, honest, <laughs> they're so bad. Look, frankly speaking, some of the names were so bad. The reason I can't repeat them is that when we Googled them and we looked in Urban Dictionary at what they actually okay. meant, <laughs> so you'll understand why I can't. Trust right. me, they were that bad. Okay. Um, they would probably result in some sort of action against you um, okay. by, well, we by Apple in the App Store. Um, so some of them were really bad by accident. Um, and then some of the logos and stuff are really bad. But look, in the end, it's actually, it takes me back to something, and it's quite corny, um, but it really is, it, it resonates with me. Um, and I think it's so true. Uh, when Steve Jobs was asked, okay, what makes a successful company and what makes a successful entrepreneur? And he said, well, what makes a successful entrepreneur and company in society's eyes, as it were, is actually just quite simply being a bit insane. Because most sane people would give up. It's so hard. I mean, you'll know this. It's, it's so hard. There are so many reasons to give up. There are so many people telling you you can't do things um, that you'd give up. And I think back then, I think what was really fun about it, I actually look back really fondly at it, and it's great to still have those people still in the business because mm. you have that shared history, you know. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's really... It's, it's actually quite moving sometimes to think about it because you, you go through this phase of, like, when I worked for Goldman Sachs and if I called someone, generally speaking, they'd call me back because generally speaking, they're calling back Goldman Sachs. And suddenly I had to get used to the fact that I'm calling most people I was calling were not calling me back, <laughs> you know. And so you have, to, you have to accept that and you have to find ways to find value um, and give value to people. But probably the most intoxicating thing about being an entrepreneur um, versus working at a big company is being able to say, hey, that would be a really cool way of doing things and having a bunch of people around you going, actually, yeah, that could be a really good way of doing things and just doing it yeah. and seeing customers engage with it. Um, that is really, really cool. And that is something we had right at the beginning um, and we still have today. And so long as I run the company, I, I hope that we continue to have yeah. that. What was your first breakthrough? Well, who was the first big client when you thought, okay, this could actually go somewhere? Well, when we start, so with Velocity Black, I mean, we, we wanted to make sure that, like, I'm a big believer that you, if you're not paying for something, you don't really value it, right? So we were very keen to make sure that we had customers actually paying for the product and holding us to account for paying for the product. And it was very new. I mean, when we, you pay at the time when we started, it was 2,000 pounds. 
the year paid up front and there was no telephone number to call right and so people said oh we'll see it why would i use a product like yours where you know i can message in to the app that's great but i can't call anyone and and i said well because it's a much better way of doing things it doesn't mean we won't speak to people on the phone um, but we were going to guarantee a response within 60 seconds, all day, all night, every day of the year. Um, messaging is asynchronous. Um, I'd seen what was happening in China with WeChat, not yeah. just as a platform of messaging between people, but actually as a platform of commerce. And so that's what we did. And people said, well, I can call Ryanair. I can call EasyJet. And I said, well, go on, then try calling Ryanair. See, see, see how far that gets you and see how long it takes to get something done. And now we look at our platform and if somebody does say hey can you call me on average it takes less than 30 seconds for their phone to start ringing okay. it's, it's quite remarkable but that almost never happens wow. um, because people people love the fact that they can just pick up their app message in um, and really cool things start yeah. happening for them so we started it off quite simple um, so a lot of our first members were just people we knew and people were like well I remember one of our first members say See, I don't really know quite what this is, but I'm going to take your word for it, and, okay, and I'm going I'm gonna, to I'm gonna put my card details in and join, uh, which is great. And then it grew from there, and then those people told their friends, and they told their friends, um, and now we have members in. I mean, we launched just over two years ago. We have members in um, over 60 cities around the world, yeah. um, and we've delivered close to 60,000 experiences now in that time. Um, word of mouth via the app, well, you know, the referral system mm. to the app continues to be our number one channel for growing our customer base and i think that's a really good sign i think if yeah. you've got a product that people want to evangelize not just consume then i think you're onto something what were the journeys what were the kind of the pain points that you were getting rid of for people i think with our product it's, it's not just about you know you think about that vitamin versus painkiller dynamic which mm. a lot of people um, who read startup literature would know i think ours is a bit of both you know for, for us it's simply look we're all so busy and you don't know what you don't know. And I think one other thing that is symptomatic of our time, especially living in cities, is we sacrifice the important for the urgent. We do that all the time. So important stuff just almost far too frequently just doesn't get done. And we really try to fix that. So I'll give you an example of a, something that was personal to me um, that maybe answers a bit of your earlier question as well. When we were growing up, we couldn't really afford to go on a safari. Right? Going on a safari is a pretty expensive thing for a family of five. And um, now I worked in finance. Uh, I had a disposable income that meant that I, we could go on safari. And I take great joy in taking my um, parents and my siblings and stuff on, on a trip. So four years into my career, I remember we still haven't gone on safari. And so I thought, OK, well, we should do it. And then I went online and I Googled it. And all of the companies that actually delivered, assuming you don't want sort of an off-the-shelf sort of Thomas yeah. Cook um, safari, which I didn't, all of the companies, essentially, you had to call them or email them. And then they try calling you back. But, I mean, you know, the chances these days we're actually going to pick up the phone when somebody calls is very, very slim. And if you're open 9 till 6, Monday to Friday, essentially, you just get getting kicked into the long grass because there's always something more urgent to take care of. And so that was very important to me. But months were going by without me actually doing it. So what we now have is a platform where you open it up. There's a recommendation engine on the home screen that learns more and more about you all the time. And it'll be showcasing you a really amazing giraffe collaring safari in Namibia, for example, or it's a really beautiful place, which I'm actually wanting to take my mum to, which is um, Giraffe Manor uh, in Kenya, which is an old British manor house where the giraffes pop their heads oh, into course, the window. Yeah. And you might have seen it, yeah. Um, <laughs> And then if you were interested in it, you just click um, request and it goes through to our travel team. They'll come back with availability. And because we have your payment details securely, 
um, stored up in the cloud, just like Uber would do. Uh, we make booking that dead easy, and then you can book. We'll organize restaurants, we'll organize, um, and not just when you're traveling, right, even in your home city. So our core offering is dining experiences, uh, luxury goods, and travel. And this year, we're going to be launching new verticals. I'm really excited about launching our healthcare product um, through popular demand. Actually, people have been requesting that. And so really, the answer to that question is people... So let me answer the question this way. The net worth of our member base now is a third of a trillion dollars. A third of them open the app every single day. Uh, and the average customer makes 40 bookings or purchases a year. So we've become almost an indispensable partner mm -hmm. for them with their lives. And part of it is making things that they would otherwise do easier. But part of it is just helping them do things they wouldn't otherwise have done. A great case in point, um, I was at Wimbledon two summers ago, and um, I was with um, two, two members, um, and it's actually one of the members who'd invited me kindly. And he said, you know, if we, we were having strawberries and cream on that sort of sun-kissed late afternoon green um, in, in, at Wimbledon, and he said, you know, if it wasn't for Velocity Black, I would have woken up this morning and probably just succumbed to cement Netflix and ordered a takeaway, but actually I opened up the app, and it was actually the same day he ended up purchasing wow. the tickets um, and getting into, the, getting into his Uber, and off he went. And that, to me, is, is, what, is what's magical about it, because that is a day. I still remember that day. You know, you can just yeah, of imagine circling that day in the diary and going, that was a great day, as opposed to succumbing to Netflix. Nothing wrong with Netflix. I mean, I love Netflix as well. But it's not something you're ever going to look back on. No one watches the entire season of Game of Thrones. And well, I don't think anyone does watch it. And then look back and go, that was a, such time a fulfilling way yeah. to spend my time. And that's really what our platform's about. It's helping people make the most of the short time yeah. that we have on this planet. I know you speak about the uh, referral system. What were the early marketing ploys? Because you mm. must have had some very influential and important members. Mm. Did you ever leverage the kind of influencer model? I know Gigi Hadid, mm -hmm. for example, was a was an early prominent mm -hmm. user. Did you ask them to be partners in it in somehow? When we think about marketing the product at the beginning, we knew we had to create credibility around our brand. So we actually did quite a few events. Um, and so what we did um, with LA to this day, actually Los Angeles remains our most popular city um, in terms of velocity black members. And so what we did, we did numerous events and people really enjoyed them. Um, it created, because this was something that was so new, it was really difficult to actually explain what it is until you've used it. So those events allowed us to get people together around a shared passion. And so with some of those influences, it was quite a long time ago now, before um, quite a lot of the developments, I guess, with influences that we can think of more recently happened. But actually, look, we, we, we never actually paid any of them. Um, they actually really enjoyed the product um, and said, hey, you know, would you be okay if we posted about this on Instagram? And some of them did. But it was never really a focus for Fine. us. Um, it was never something that was concerted or orchestrated. And partly, frankly, because the kind of audience we go after, with all, this kind of all due respect, sort of hairspray companies or tooth whitening companies, mm. this is an audience which is far more discerning than that. And actually, a word of mouth referral from someone who is directly in your social network is far more powerful as a purchasing driver yeah. uh, than a celebrity or Instagram person. Yeah. Do you think now we've seen um, the kind of the decline of the influencer power? Do you think there's things are going to have to change either legally or morally around advertising like that? In terms of what the laws, I mean, I think the FTC has come down quite hard and is making sure now that people are disclosing uh, mm. their if, if if a post is sponsored that that it is sponsored, and I think that is important. But equally, people are quite, I think people have become a lot smarter now. Yeah. Um, and I think that 
most people know if somebody's holding up a credit card or you know grinning widely and talking about a teeth whitening product that they're probably not just doing yeah. it because they really love the product and i also think frankly that it's not just that it's 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 the whole facebook cambridge analytica debacle i, I think people are becoming a lot wiser now and i think that brands and companies need to frankly just go back to route one which is focusing yeah. on the product of course is there a kind of due diligence you do on everything because i assume mm. that yeah uh, you want to say yes to as many things as possible both financially and also because you mm. want to delight and please your members mm. but do you check that what you're doing is yeah well is no I mean, absolutely that's our model right so we've essentially created a wall garden so the difference between say us and google and frankly, even in some cases, Amazon or eBay or whatever it might be, is we're not just relying on the wisdom of the crowds and Yelp reviews and all of this stuff. You know, for me, I don't really care about Yelp reviews, mainly because as soon as I see there's a cottage industry that does online reputation management, mm -hmm. my assumption is those reviews are not really worth anything. Plus, the other interesting and important point is it's always fascinated me, these Yelp reviews. So me and you could go and watch the same show. Yeah. And you might love it and I might absolutely detest it, both validly because we're both individuals and we have our own tastes. So how does that work? So does that mean that show is now a three star, mm. three stars? And actually, frankly, someone who found it mediocre or average wouldn't leave a review anyway. So that's a big part of what we do. It's understanding you as an individual. And this is where technology can really play its part to make sure that we're tailoring whether it's restaurants whether it's your accommodation uh, whether it's your um, what you're going to do this weekend based around you as an individual and then in terms of how we think about our partners all of our partners are vetted and we stand behind we stand behind it so we won't wash our hands um, of a situation so if for example something went wrong and with the best will in the world when you when you're in the travel experiences dining uh, business sometimes things can go wrong yeah. The difference when you're a member of ours is that the supply will move mountains to make things right because they know they're not just screwing with one particular customer, they're screwing with the entire buying power that we have and the entire audience that we have and we will hold. Uh, well, we try to be a great partner to them um, and you know, likewise our demand side is curated. You know, we, we won't just take anyone and uh, we try to keep bad actors out. We try to make sure you know, we have rules of the club. So if you no-show for three dining reservations in a 12-month period without adequate reason, um, we'll just politely ask you to leave um, leave the community. And actually, people love that because that's, you know, you talk to any restaurateur, we're in Mayfair right now in London, talk to a restaurateur about their Friday evenings, there's nothing they can't stand more of course. than people who book a table for eight and are so arrogant that they just feel like they can book three of those in different restaurants and not turn up. And so we try to be a good partner to our suppliers and our suppliers uh, move mountains to um, do right by our customers, but everything is vetted. And, and that's a, that idea of the walled garden um, is really fundamental and sacrosanct to what yeah. our business model is. And it means that our customers, when they use us to book something, they can kind of rest easy. And that peace of mind means that that's cognition that they don't need to be expending on this. They can use it, they can expend it on their careers or on their families or on something more worth. And who are the gardeners, so to speak? When I'm texting someone in off my phone mm -hmm. or using the app, who's at the other end? How many people are there? Yeah, so uh, it's actually all done natively through our smartphone app. So we, we don't use SMS, but in terms of the team, um, so we have uh, about 
14 people just down the road on Old Burlington Street here in Mayfair. Uh, we have a really nice office actually in, in, on Vine Street in uh, Hollywood in mm -hmm. Los Angeles. Um, and we have a team of people in Soho in New York. Um, so they're all people. I guess what's the commonality? I mean, first of all, I know this sounds a bit odd, but one of the key points is these are all people you would, frankly, you'd want to go on holiday with. You know, you would be like, yeah, you organize the weekend. They're people who understand yeah. um, what hospitality is. And they have a great sense of what's cool, what's interesting, um, what's fun. But the network we have, which actually brings us our experiences and uh, our uh, supply side offering, is much, much bigger than that. We have journalists, we have um, explorers, we have um, people who are formerly from government agencies. We have all sorts of incredibly interesting people um, who will help open doors for us. And mm. we have these things, which I really love, which is called uh, Velocity Black Originals. So inspired by Netflix and Amazon Prime Video, obviously. These are things that kind of look like TV shows, but they're actually things that you can go and do. So whether that's, um, there's one which is swimming with blue whales in Sri Lanka with an amazing conservationist where you actually go and microchip uh, these incredible creatures. We have one in the app at the moment, which is, um, it's actually a trip to the International Space Station in 2020, uh, mm. which is pretty cool. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, one of them is you get access, we, we have access to the, um, on the space theme, um, to the shuttle launch facility at the Kennedy Space Center. You can go up in a Lockheed M104 to twice the speed of sound. In fact, it, the plane goes so fast that they actually have to repaint it at the end because the paint gets stripped off. Um, so these are just some examples of the kind of truly astonishing things that you can kind of do just at the palm of your hand. But they're more emblematic, I guess, of the power of the platform when you've got a curated demand side and you've got this network on the supply side that know that there's this audience of people who are actually really interested in doing something differentiated and would rather perhaps go out than stay in. Yeah. yeah. One of the most impressive things about Velocity Black is the, the rate at which you've raised funds um, and the, the sheer volume of kind of investors and partners you've got on board. Are you very good at pitching? What's your skill set? Are you an incredible pitch guy? Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. I'd say actually it's something that's been core to our DNA as a firm pretty much from day one has been the magnetism of the product uh, and the team. So the number of people who have heard about our product via our member base, I mean, look, it's something that to some degree is comes with the territory of having a product, a digital product, a platform in the hands of wealthy, successful um, individuals all around the world. And they use the product and they might show their friend and they'll refer their friend. And the number of times then people then hit me up on LinkedIn and go, hey, I love the product. I mean, I'll give you an example. I won't name them, but two gentlemen reached out to me um, and they were both um, in the first 15 employees at Uber. So sort of Travis's, among sort of Travis's right-hand men right at the beginning. And one of them told me that the way they feel about Velocity Black now, having used them, is the way that people said back in the day to them they felt about Uber. This wow. feeling of, I can't really, don't know how I managed without it. So yeah. before you had it, you didn't really know that you needed it. But once you've used it, you find it becomes so part and parcel to your life, which goes with the territory of having that kind of engagement of you know 40 bookings plus a year per person and a third of the customers opening it every day. So that's really what it's been about. And then people also love, it's really interesting because so, so people come into the office and they'll go and give a big hug to one of, because you can actually see whom you're speaking to in the app. And oh, so wow. they'll go, oh, can, I, can I come and meet them? They'll come in from LA or they'll come in from Hong Kong and they'll go and give that person a hug and say, oh, I've spoken to this person. 
every day for the last year. And so that magnet, that's really what it's been. It's been magnetism. And I think the other thing that I will say is that there, the underlying economics are very, very strong. I mean, it, again, to use some slightly nerdy startup metrics, our lifetime value to cost of acquiring a customer ratio is 14 times, um, which is which we're really pleased with. And it keeps growing. Uh, and as we launch new verticals like healthcare and real estate and art, that number, I think, is, is only going to keep growing. So that's really what it's been about. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the reality is you can you can have a great pitch, but the kind of investors we have, I mean, one of our investors, for example, is um, is, is Barry Sternlicht, um, who's the founder of Starwood Hotels. He's only going to invest in something that he's diligenced and he sees value in and that he knows that, you know, he created the Starwood Preferred Guest Program, the Starwood brand, the, um, you know, the W brand, et cetera, from scratch, and an amazing guy. So we're privileged to meet him. But he's the, the kind of investor yeah. we have. So I think, look, having good presentation skills, of course, is important. I think I'm a reasonable presenter. Uh, but in the end, you have to have a product that makes sense and you have to have metrics um, that also make sense. Yeah. Are you raising money at the moment? What, what stage of growth are you at in startup speak? Yeah, so we, we, we last year, so if you look at our fiscal year 2018, we grew 850% year on year in terms of net revenue. Um, we're going to continue. I mean, we're on track, for example, in Q1 to grow another two 250% year on year, just because the only reason the percentage is smaller is because obviously the absolute num- number in the base is getting bigger. We are, um, w- look, the, the bottom line now is we're, as a business, we're very close to the stage where the business is generating cash on an underlying basis, which is a really nice moment as an entrepreneur. It's frankly the way I've always wanted to run the business because, I don't know, I've got some friends who are founders of companies that are sort of technically unicorns and worth huge amounts, but they go to bed at night knowing somebody in an ivory tower could just wake up and go, mm, nah, and just turn off the tower. And that's quite scary. I can imagine how scary that um, that would be. So, um, so yeah, look, we're, we're really just focused now on, on execution. Um, we've got quite a lot going on in terms of launching new regions. Um, so this year we're going to launch um, Asia um, and the Middle East in quite a big way. Um, so that's kind of where we're more focused yeah. now as opposed to capital raising. And what's your headcount, so to speak, and what will it be by the time you've, read, you've gone to Asia? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. I think we're quite unusual in that sense. So headcount at the moment in terms of full-time team members, we have 58. Right, um, the majority are in the UK, and the the rest are in the US, and a small number of people that are a couple of engineers in Barcelona. But actually, that hasn't grown over the last twelve months, despite all of that. So you, even if you look at that eight hundred fifty percent revenue growth, headcount actually declined by one person in that time, and that's partly because of our technology platform, and also, it's kind of like how I like the company to be. I, I don't know. I'm always wary of growing headcount too quickly because I know this sounds like a horrible cliche but it's something I've absolutely learned your team is so important and frankly in the business we're in you really are as good as your lowest common denominator if that makes sense mm. you know um, so first of all we've got a team that work ridiculously hard um, if you're going to go down the road now you know still probably quite a lot of people there because they love what they do and secondly because we've spent a, you know product and engineering is the biggest portion of our expenditure we actually spend all, very little on marketing and, and, and uh, so most of it goes in the product and so they've been building more and more automation more and more uh, personalization into the product which has allowed us to keep growing revenues without needing to add uh, lots and lots of people I think in the long term let me put it this way we received 6,100 job applications last year Wow! Um, and we hired about 14 people um, and 
if we look at going forward, we do have mandates. We've got live mandates for about 16 people at the moment. I think we'll end up by the end of this year, probably closer to around 120 people or so by the end of this year, a mixture of product and engineering, customer agents, and um, some people in new verticals like healthcare, for example. And what's the culture you've kind of tried to create there? Is it is it very different to the investment bank model where people stay late and work hard and that we spoke before about kind of presenteeism where you've got to be at your desk even if you're not being that productive? Mm-hmm. What do you try and instill at Velocity Black? Well, I try to instill the absolute opposite of that. Okay. There's absolutely no dogma around what time people have to be in or what time they have to leave. My own personal opinion is that being physically together is quite important in terms of when you're innovating. Right. It's very hard to innovate remotely. You know, you could talk about this idea. It's, it's kind of ideas having sex, if you see what I mean. Yeah. You kind of need to bounce ideas off each other. You need to take a nugget of an idea and maybe whiteboard something. But actually, there's a lot of flexibility. Uh, but what I will say is people do work really, 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 really hard. Uh, but again, because they love what they do. I instituted a policy, actually, um, which says that everyone in the company, aside from their holiday allowance, they have to have at least two weeks in the year when they are on holiday and completely disconnected from the business. Because even when people are on holiday, they yeah, are, of course. they're kind of messaging in and they feel a, ne- a need to work, which I can relate to. So you I mean, have that I'm, on top of your usual holiday? Oh, no. So it's, it, it's yeah, part it's just, of the usual yeah. holiday. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that's something that line managers um, need to enforce. But look, people really, really are passionate about what they do. Um, and I think you have to have that. It, it's actually quite a very different culture, I'd say, to investment banking. It's uh, because it's a creative enterprise. Yeah. Um, banking, I'd say, certainly these days is from what I can tell, far less creative, much more process-driven. And where in our business, yes, as we grow, there are obviously a lot more processes. The most fun and the most interesting part about it is of those 58 people, no matter whom you are, you, I mean, let me put it this way, I've probably been on WhatsApp. I've probably had some kind of contact either on WhatsApp or Slack or email mm-hmm. with everyone in the company within the last 14 days, which hopefully is quite empowering for them as yeah. well because it means that you can go from that would be a cool idea or a customer said that would be a great idea and you can have that shipped to the app store and someone using it in like six days and I think if you don't have I think that's a huge competitive advantage The app is obviously for very very time poor people mm. uh, I wonder how you manage your own time and whether you're working seven days a week and 20 hour days or do you give yourself time off? I've become better at creating space for not just thinking about the work, if that makes sense. And so that means whether it's, yeah, you know, consuming a podcast, consuming an audio book. Um, I have a dog that I walk to work each day in the morning and walk home in the, in, in, in the evenings. That's a really nice time for me. I've, frankly, I've tried going to a beach or something on a holiday and all I do is just think about the business. So that doesn't really help. What I find does help is, you know, going to the nets and playing cricket. Um, okay. So if you've got a bowling machine and the ball's coming at 80 miles an hour, you're really <laughs> in the moment, right? Um, likewise, tennis I find um, yeah. really fun and helps me disconnect. But, yeah, look, I, I do I work seven days a week? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, and But as we were saying earlier, I love what I do. It, it doesn't feel like it's not because someone's standing over me with a you know, with a stick <laughs> forcing me to do it. It's It's because I love what I do. I also feel like... There are a lot of people who have jumped into this boat with me and Alex, you know, and yeah. you, you have to take, you have to grasp that um, and own it and try to lead by example. Yeah. And let's talk about Alex for a second. Yeah. What what traits does he have that you don't have and what traits do you have that he doesn't have? How do you complement each other and what's your kind of working relationship like? 
I think if you met him, he would, um, which you definitely should do. He, we're very, very different. You'd be able to tell us straight away. I think he, straight off the bat, he listens a lot more than me. <laughs> I definitely, <laughs> in terms of the talking to listening ratio, he is very much at the opposite end of the spectrum, which works really, really well. He's extremely observant. He's got a frightening intellect. Very, very smart guy, which is also very important because it means that I, I think it's. In, on a journey like this, it's hard to overstate how important it is to have someone who will tell you things you don't want to hear. It's that's a great maxim in life, generally. Yeah, you know, I'm sure. especially when you you know the number of times you meet people, and you're like, "How has this person ended up like that?" And then you sort of spend a bit of time with them. Oh, that's why, because they're just surrounded by people who tell them how great they are, um, or never tell them um, the truth. And so we will do that with each other. And the fact, therefore, that I genuinely value his opinion is incredibly important. Um, because if you don't value that person's opinion, then it's largely meaningless. So that's really great. Um, he, he, we share a lot of the same fundamental values, though. You know, he works just as hard as I do. I think if you're founders and one person's working meaningfully less hard, that's going to create a problem. Um, he also sees things very different to me sometimes. So as I said, partly because he listens more. So if we're in a meeting together, which happens less and less now, actually, but if we're in a meeting together, we'll finish the meeting and it'll be amazing. He'll come out with some, well, that was really interesting. I wasn't expecting that. And that just never even crossed my mind. And it's, again, it's so hard to overstate. It's like having two brains. Yeah. Um, so that's that's why uh, it really works well. It, he's also just a lot of fun. Okay. So he, I really wonder, you know, when I meet founders of startups who don't have a co-founder, I'm in awe of that because I can tell you the number of times, you know, it's a roller coaster, right? You can go from ecstasy and, and joy yeah. and euphoria to, you know, feeling like, oh, it's, it's all going to end. And having someone who's there um, who you can crack a joke with, um, whom you have that shared history with, is that camaraderie. Yeah. Uh, it's just so important. And uh, it really is the kind of lifeblood of the business. There's a lot of people obviously trying to set up apps in similar spaces. Yeah. What mistakes do you see people making more often than not? I think... If you look last year, sorry, the year before is where I saw this data, nine out of the top 10 most downloaded apps in the App Store were owned by Google and Facebook, right? And we live in a world now where, you know, you've got these big five technology companies. And if you're creating an app, I, I see a lot of apps these days and we see a lot of decks, which are kind of solutions in search of a problem or kind of look really interesting and fun or compelling, but not really as a business, right? They're kind of like a product or a feature, and so you should really be thinking about if this is really great and it takes off, why wouldn't Facebook, Amazon or Microsoft or Google do this? Right. Or Apple. Or have done it already. Or have done it already. Yeah. But look, look at Snapchat. Right. Yeah. Snapchat stock is absolutely tanked. And, you know, in my view, Mark Zuckerberg wakes up every day and, you know, thinks about different ways that he can absolutely destroy share. You know, you know, look, they're taking a lot of Snapchat's ideas. Right. Going back. Do you remember the first time I, I remember the first time I saw Instagram yeah, stories? Of course. And I just thought, right, exactly th the same. this That's is it. right. And anything that they innovated, it was good, Facebook would take, and they have a much lower cost of capital, they're a much bigger company, they have a much bigger user base, um, etc. Now, if we look at the way we've tried to build our business, we've tried to find a, a, an area where those big companies are not actually set up uh, to cater for the kind of things um, that we do. We're very clear about who our target audience is, and 0.4% you know, of the world's population controls around 22% of the world's spending power. And those are the people who we try to use personalization and deliver 
um, you know, perks and benefits for. So we were always really clear about who our target audience was and how can we delight them and how can we make their lives better. And I think that that's probably the most important thing. I think you've got to have a clear target audience mm. and you've got to think about how is this going to be A, a business as opposed to a product uh, or a feature? And why wouldn't one of those massive companies uh, with all of the advantages that they have, why wouldn't they do it? And, and then, by the way, there could be a lot of reasons why they wouldn't, by the way. Um, so I don't wanna, certainly don't want to discourage anyone. Um, but I, I do think sometimes people don't really think that through. What are the big technology, technological developments, or, or I guess even the big apps and products that you see now that really excite you, the fresh ones, almost that you wish you'd, you'd thought of yourself? <laughs> I can tell you there's bloody loads. <laughs> I wish I'd have thought of myself. Yeah, that's a good question. That, look, there's a really, I, I've got a strong view on this, that Peter Thiel, um, who I really enjoy reading and listening to, and he talks about, you know, the quote, he, the slogan of his venture capital firm is that, is that they promised us flying cars and all we got was 140 characters, which, which I love, right? And you look at so many, you look at where the world is going today and I, I do think there's space actually for a load more really interesting innovation. I mean, look, how much have, has life really changed over 30 and 50 years other than frank, you know, certain areas around software and smartphones? And so for example, we'll get every day, we'll get four or five LinkedIn requests and emails, sort of speculative emails, some sort of HR software, like software as a service for mm. HR, right? Which is fine. Does the world need another HR software as a service product? Probably not, you know? That's why, um, look, I know this is a really cliched answer, but I'm, I'm a huge admirer of what, I'm not necessarily an admirer of all of his tweets, uh, but um, what Elon Musk is doing with looking to, you know, help us become a multi-planet species, right? Um, that to me, it's, it's like less about, hey, I wish I thought of that myself. I'm not cognitively capable of doing that. Um, but my God, what, what an amazing thing um, to be doing. And uh, likewise, running Tesla. I think the advent of artificial intelligence, I think in some ways it's really overblown the impact um, that it's going to have. In some ways, I think we do have a lot to think about, about the impact it's going to have on society. Um, but look, for me, I'm always looking at those moonshots and like, how can we, how can we as a species create technology that's actually going to make people's lives like astonishingly better? I mean, can you imagine getting into a, a rocket and going to Mars? That would just be so mind blowing relative to, I don't know, another uh, game for your smartphone or you know pro evolution soccer 2021 not that there's anything wrong with that <laughs> of I, course. Mean, I like pro evolution but you know what i mean yeah so for me that's where i if you know after velocity uh that would be something that um i'd really look to focus on and by the way the other one which i really think is really interesting especially as we look at our healthcare uh, business is um is is uh, healthcare and well-being uh, you know i i think that some, I've come across some amazing companies doing unbelievable things. And, you know, Peter Thiel actually said this recently, which actually shocked me, and I looked it up. It's true. So how much does it cost to create a software company and market it? Probably about $100,000, right? Maybe about £60,000. You can put a product together that's somewhat marketable and get some customers. To get a drug approved by the FDA, you need a billion dollars. Wow. And you can argue that that's correct. You could also argue that 
maybe maybe there's more that we can do to um, to help people live longer, to help people live better lives. Um, and I think that we've got a lot to question about what role technology has to play in, in the broader um, kind of arc of humanity's journey. Amazing. I want to ask you now our kind of final quickfire questions that we ask. Who in the world of business do you most admire? I said Elon Musk. I'll, I'll say it again just to be clear. I don't approve of all of his <laughs> tweets and no one's perfect. And I think anyone who works that many hours will probably be liable to say some things that they regret. But what I will say is someone, I mean, running one company absolutely takes it out of me to be doing Tesla and SpaceX and his AI charity is, and, and um, the boring yeah, company is astonishing, you know. And, and this is like a, a man who is, think about how many cities he is kind of more productive than. Yeah. Right? It's, it's absolutely astonishing and, and it's really inspiring because when you look at someone like him, I sit there thinking, wow, I'm a massive waste of space by comparison. <laughs> um, and I also just think the other point is when he talks about first principles thinking, the idea that he could create a company that would essentially start winning contracts from NASA from scratch is kind of mind-blowing. So I really admire that. And I also think the other thing, he's got this childlike spirit about him. He's always thinking about things. How, how can we make things fun? How can He is kind of like this eight-year-old boy, yeah. but with an astonishing mind and astonishing work ethic. And um, that, that definitely resonates with me. And you're in the fun industry as well, I guess. You're selling fun and... Well, look, I said this to our team in our team sync yesterday. It is a real privilege to be in. I wouldn't just say fun. Again, I'd go to meaning, right? So we are absolutely, when you see the feedback from our customers, they, they'll send photos of them at dinner with their friends or family or on a holiday or proposing. And it's just mind-blowing. And we genuinely move the needle for people's happiness. And you, as an entrepreneur, it's really hard, like really hard to overstate how energizing that is. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't moving the needle for people? If I wasn't at Velocity, I think I would definitely be um, involved in some kind of um, health tech uh, startup. I'd, I'd be looking at ways that we can um, we can make we can improve people's health and improve people's well-being and lives in a direct way. What's your worst habit? Do you think? I think my worst habit. I'm, again, I'm trying to be better at this. Is not being present in the moment. So, sort of walking around or being at my desk and thinking about all sorts of things and wondering where the last 20 minutes went yeah um and not spending enough of that time productively that's probably my worst habit what are you most proud of so far in your career i think i'm most proud of the fact that i've been able and blessed enough by the way as well which is important um to be able to take important decisions when i needed to whether that's for example not become a doctor I can tell you my mum coming from a subcontinental Asian uh, background my mum was absolutely adamant I was going to be a doctor my mum didn't speak to me for quite a prolonged period when I told her I wasn't oh, taking wow. chemistry A level which was a death knell <laughs> to me doing uh, medicine so she was really upset about that and uh, but I didn't do that and then I quit my job um, at Goldman's to do this and at various stages we've had options to kind of not sell out but sort of not do the thing that we felt was actually the right thing to do from an instinctive perspective so I think that's the thing I'm most proud of and what on the other side has been your biggest failure or regret so far look I've certainly made plenty plenty of mistakes but I don't have I don't actually regret any of them and that doesn't mean I will never regret anything I wouldn't go that far all I'd say is that all of when I look back at any of the sort of mistakes I've made when I look back 
I don't know that I would be where I am right now with the opportunity that we have, um, having the joy of working with really smart people doing something I love, if not for those mistakes. Yeah. So again, I, I don't think, I'm not certainly not someone who says, it's not, I'm not je ne regret rien. I, <laughs> I think that there's definitely some things you can do which would have such a dramatic impact on your life that you would regret them. And yeah. I think it's important to bear that in mind. But I definitely think the mistakes that I've made, in the end, we are a sum total of those. Which phrase or conventional way of thinking would you like to banish from the earth? I've got a strong view on this. I think the biggest one is people always seem to think that, if, let's say there's two options. They always seem to think, think there's the really risky option and there's, this, there's not taking the risk. And actually, they're just both risks. So, for example, choosing to not quit a job that you're really not happy at. And again, I just want to be clear, some people have to work at a job for various reasons, mm. and, and you know, I, I just want to be clear about that. But choosing to quit your job to go and pursue something you really care about with all of the risks that come with that, including, by the way, the most mortifying risk, which is that you could fail, which is really scary, that is a big risk. But equally, staying in that job is a huge risk because if five years down the line, you're, you're going to be in a job you, can, you hate even more and you're going to be five years older and probably more ingrained in your identity and probably more commitments and more monthly payments and all sorts of more reasons why. And, and I think we just see that time and time and time again. We see that whether it's, um, we see that in the way, you know, frankly, you know, the regulation in, in the healthcare industry, for example, potentially. Uh, you see it with our day-to-day -day lives, you know, ask if we really like someone taking the, plucking up the courage to ask them out. Yeah. That feels like the really r risky option, right? But hey, if you go through your whole life and you never tell someone how you actually feel about them, I can tell you, you know, if it reaches a stage when I know, because I've spoken to some people where it was just too late to do that, that's, you suddenly realize where the yeah. real risk was. So I think that's the biggest one, a failure of our system and our society to help people to understand the dynamics of yeah. risk. I have a kind of personal rule that if I ever think something like that, whether it's fancying someone at a bar mm -hmm. or seeing someone who I'm really impressed by, I'm a kind of a business mentor or a famous person, mm -hmm. if I think that I want to go and speak to them, I have to go and do it. Brilliant. Because if not, for the rest of the day, rest of the evening, yeah. I'll be absolutely furious with myself. Right. So it gives you, it's a horrible, horrible feeling, that walk up. Yes. But even even if they say no, I'm almost relieved. I'm like, oh, thank God, at least I did it. Because now I know that's how I don't have to but think But don't you anymore. think that feeling, it's, it's that feeling just before you reach the precipice of yeah. the roller coaster. Right, <laughs> yeah, that is. feeling is it's really is I time. think the feeling that you're doing something right in life. Yeah, definitely. If, you, if you're never experiencing that feeling, then I don't think you're living life quite to the extent that you need to. It's a good rule. I think everyone should follow it. Or yes, we go to Thorpe Park more. It'll go to yeah, either <laughs> or. Uh, that's a good one actually, because the next question is, what's your biggest fear? I think my biggest fear, and maybe this is what a lot of people feel, is not having a meaningful legacy. Yeah, trying to leave the world a slightly better place than where you found it. I'm interested to see what your obituary was like when you wrote <laughs> it at 10 years old. I think I just wrote something really sarcastic because I couldn't actually bring myself to face my own mortality at that time. Uh, so I copped out with some sort of um, uh, comical remark. There's a really interesting uh, video I watched recently about there being three deaths in Mexico. That really, have you heard of this? It was no. really fascinating, really stuck with me. There's three deaths. The first death you die as a human is when you learn that we're mortal, okay. right? And the second death is when you actually die. And the third death is the last time somebody says your name. Wow. Isn't that, isn't that, that just God, stuck with me. That's horrible and lovely well, it, in but equal yeah, measure. It moves you, it's horrible, yeah. but it's like bittersweet as well, yeah. right? And I think the reason I like that is because it, it just really focuses you, right? It, it kind of focuses you on what am I doing? What am I doing today that is going to mean something? 
yeah. of substance above and beyond. And, and look, frankly speaking, this is a great example, not to not ne- knock Netflix, but watching a season of Game of Thrones is probably not going to move the needle in terms of that. And, yeah. I, and I think that's a deeply ingrained thing that we all have as human beings, um, a desire to have a legacy. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a party trick? No, uh, no I, I, actually, party. I, I, I have absolutely no party tricks whatsoever. I, I tried when I was about 14, I tried, I, somebody got me a magic set, okay. right? And I can only assume, like if you think about the psychology of someone buying you a magic set when you're 14, somebody's basically looking at you going, you're probably going to need some help in social situations. <laughs> you're going to need something. Um, but I was terrible at that okay. as well. So, so unfortunately, I just don't have, I don't have one. No. Uh, what do you like at parties? Are you a party animal? Not, not of course. No, I, I really am the opposite. So, some people expect me to be yeah, you sort of so the life. I'm, I'm really, not, I'm incredibly introverted and I usually end up going home really early. I, I don't know why it is. Um, um, I just find, do you know what one thing, you know, you talked about social conventions. Anytime music's playing so loud that one has to raise their yeah. voice in order to be heard, that's usually a sign for me to go home. <laughs> and it's worked quite well historically. Okay, that's a good rule. I'm yeah. the exact opposite, I think. The louder the music right. gets, the more, then the, more I find, yeah. the harder I find it to right. leave. Really? Um, okay, yeah. interesting. I don't know if it's a well, Maybe we should go on a night out at some point yeah, well, and see never, whether we have some out. sort of equilibrium. Okay, fine. <laughs> it sounds like fun. Um, <laughs> Where we both leave. Okay, know. fine. Or oh, I arrive just as you're leaving. <laughs> yeah. That'd be even worse. Which um, book has influenced you the most, do you think, Zia? That's quite an easy answer, actually. It's The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Have you read that? No, I haven't. Oh, I so recommend everyone listening, go and either... Buy the book or buy the audio book because it's actually him. It's actually really annoying when you get an audio book and it's some random American reading it. This isn't. This is actually Ben Horowitz, um, who's obviously half of Andreessen Horowitz. And it was like a really tough time for me personally. Um, And I was feeling quite alone at the time. And I remember walking to this soulless airport and I started listening to it. And one of our team had highly recommended it. And as soon as I heard his voice talking, it was like the book was written for me. Uh, And he talks so passionately and honestly. He's really funny. Uh, and he just talks about um, how he, I mean, he built a multi-billion dollar business. He was going to IPO it and the company was basically insolvent, but he managed to get the IPO away. But he talks about how, he talks about real issues um, in such a compelling and, and authentic way and how to approach problems, whether or not you're a founder of a startup. I, I just can't recommend that book more highly. Definitely had a huge impact on me. Amazing. I'm definitely going to read that. Yeah. Or in fact, audiobook it. That'd be much audiobook better. it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. What's your personal motto? Do you have one? Uh, well, yeah, none of us are getting out of this alive. Okay. That's, that's how I like to live. And, and look, that doesn't mean I'm sort of Ozzy Osbourne by <laughs> biting heads off bats or anything. But it's more along the lines of, again, the risk, right? Like we, mm. as you get, as we get older, time feels like it accelerates. And the difference between, you know, taking your mum out to a favourite restaurant for a birthday versus uh, just succumbing to you know, watching your random YouTube videos or yeah. something is that line is so fine. And if you can try to err on the side of meaning each time, then we're better off. Um, so that's that's how I try to live my life yeah. and encourage people I care about to do the same. Do you think your family would say that you, you do that enough? <laughs> my, my family would absolutely, I say that. My, my parents are actually very conservative uh, with a sort of simple C. They... I think I'm quite different to both of them. I'm probably more close to my mum okay. from a from a disposition uh, perspective. Um, but I love my parents, and they 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 gave me pretty much everything I have. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think they would absolutely say uh, that that's a mantra that I live by. 
Uh, but do you, I mean, do you give yourself enough time to, to do it when your hectic schedule and your working life? Well, the reality is, I believe I am doing what I am doing and how I spend my time is actually a reflection of that. So, again, I mean, when people say, oh, you know, how long, how many hours do you work? Well, I can't believe you, you're working this weekend or whatever it might be. It's what I'm choosing to do. It's yeah. like I'm voluntarily um, going to do that and I love what I do. So, yeah. for me, that's that's the biggest part of it, you know, trying to follow not just sort of following your, your dreams and your passion, that's not necessarily, I think a lot of people say that and it's, we've all seen, you know, like whatever, on Pop Idol, somebody who of course, really yeah. wants to be a pop star but might not have the talent to do it. I think it's more about trying to find that that sweet spot, right? Something you're passionate about and something that, where you're really adding value to the world. Th- those two things are important. And I feel like hopefully I've managed to find that sweet spot. And if you found it, then, my God, you just want to do as much of that as possible. Um, and, of course, do that with people you really enjoy spending time with. Yeah. The final question you may have already answered then, but um, what's your idea of happiness? You know what? We talk, we touched on it earlier. I think it's that feeling. It's that feeling of when you're right at the, at the precipice of the road yeah. where you just feel like something interesting and special is happening. It's pushing you to the edge of your comfort zone, being right on the edge there. That is... That is, for me, what happiness is. And, but ideally with someone and with people you actually care about. I think the people aspect is really hard to overstate how important. Like, everything else is immaterial. You know, like, you talk to our customers. You can be in an unbelievably opulent place with a bunch of people you can't stand and you can't yeah. wait to leave. And we've all been there. We can, we've you've probably also been in the most humble place, right, with someone you love. And that's a memory you're going to keep for the rest of your life. And I think we really underestimate how important people are, um, which, again, is a big part of why we start our business. Amazing. Sia, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with more invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurs, raconteurs and tastemakers. But in the meantime, you can read more at thegentlemansjournal.com or follow us on Instagram if you're so inclined, at the Gents Journal. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you very, very soon.